Today's class is dedicated by dear friends Liz and Dr. Michael Michel in loving memory of his father, Harav Nachem ben Reb Meir, in tribute to his sixth yard site on the 18th day of Tammuz. Rabbi Nachem Michel was born in Tarnov in Poland in the year 1924. He escaped the German Holocaust by running by fleeing to Siberia. Ultimately, he arrived to the United States of America where he received smicha. He was ordained as a rabbi by the famous Lithuanian sage, Rabbi Sral Zaev Gustman. And over the next half a century, Rabbi Nachem Michel Zechreinel of Racha dedicated his life to Jewish education. He built and led the famous Ashar School here in Rockland County, New York, educating, mentoring, inspiring thousands and thousands of students and inspiring and bringing closer to Yiddishkeit hundreds and hundreds of Jewish families in the area, inculcating in all of his students a tremendous passion and love for Torah, especially for the Tanakh, a love for Yiddishkeit, a love for our tradition, a love for Eretz Yisrael, for the land of Israel, and for the people of Israel, and for the Torah of Israel. Yehei Zichrei Baruch. May he serve as an eternal source of blessing and inspiration to his loved ones, to his family, to all of his thousands of students in Israel and across the world, and to all of the Jewish people. It's never easy to give a class during such a week, such a time, when so many of our friends, relatives, community members, people we know directly or indirectly, are going through such a difficult and challenging time. You know, and I have to say something. Many of us, you know, feel compelled to give answers, to offer explanations, to give insights. But sometimes there's really not much to say explanations and answers and insights and perspectives, as valuable as they are and as helpful as they are, sometimes silence is far more authentic, far more real, far more accurate. We don't always have to jump and give answers and give explanations and and understand things. Sometimes it's really an ego thing or an insecurity thing. Okay. I have to wrap my brain around devastating events. No, I don't have to wrap my brain around difficult events. I could just sit in awe and in silence and in pain and be here. Be here for each other. And that's really our greatest power. Our greatest power at such moments is that we can hold each other's hands look into each other's eyes, embrace, hug, love, and support each other. And not just in times of crisis, but also in times of serenity and peace and tranquility. I said on Shabbos and Shul, and I think it's very apropos, that the oldest trees in the world are known as redwoods. They are in California. They're called the sequoias, sequoia trees. Some of them are 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years old. That means you're looking at trees that existed before Moses, 
before Moshe was born. <laughs> before the Jews came down to Egypt. Incredibly, incredibly old trees. And these redwoods were investigated. Like, what is the secret of their power? How did they experience some, such longevity, weathering all of the tumultuous changes over thousands of years, and these trees remain intact and are still growing. Some of them are 350 feet tall, 50 or 75 feet in width. What is their secret? And some years ago, scientists, bot- botanists, were doing the research, and they naturally assumed that the roots of the sequoias must really be very deep, and because they're so deep, they can weather every storm, every tsunami, every hurricane, every natural disaster, every forest fire, every, every problem in the world. How shocked they were when they saw that some of their roots are extremely shallow. Some sequoias have roots that go no more than five or six feet deep. But then they discovered that what they lack in depth they compensate in breath. You see the roots, the roots of the sequoia trees extend in breath. And on the way, as they are extending, they meet the roots of other sequoia trees. And you know what they do? They interlock with each other. They become interconnected and integrated. They become one. On the surface, above the earth, you won't observe it. Each tree... It's self-contained and independent. It has its unique personality, its unique flavor, its unique character. But on a subterranean level, on a deeper level, all the trees are one. All of their roots have interlocked and have become interconnected with each other. Now, every disaster can take down a tree, even a powerful tree. But when you have so many trees locked in as one, No disaster can eliminate them. That is the secret of their endurance. We, the Jewish people, are the sequoias of history. Human being is the tree of the field. We, the Jewish people, are the redwoods of history. What is the secret for our longevity? And the answer is, above the surface, each of us is on our own. Every person is different. We don't have the same mindsets, we don't have the same faces, we don't have the same personalities, and we usually don't agree. (laughs) As the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin 38. But beneath the surface? Ooh, over there we're interlocked, we're interconnected, we're indivisible, we're one. All of our souls are one. Even though there are differences, and the differences are fine and good and should be welcomed and cherished. Diversity is not a curse, it's a blessing. But on a deeper level, there's an absolute unity. And at such moments, that's what we have. We don't have answers. At least I don't have answers. But we have each other. Hold on to each other. Pray for each other. Pray with each other. Hope. Dream together. And always be here for each other. We don't have to always agree. But we have to be here for each other. With love, with the lack of judgmentalism with a deep, deep connection. And I know that we're joined here by some family members 
who loved ones have still not been accounted for. In the devastating collapse in Surfside, Florida, last Thursday, in the wee hours of the morning, when 55 condo units of the Champlain Towers south in Surfside crashed to the ground suddenly around 1 o'clock in the morning. And at this time, our hearts and our prayers are with all of the families, all of our friends. Many of you have friends or relatives, close friends or relatives, who have been affected by this in one way or another. And our thoughts are with you, our prayers are with you, our love is with you. Our thoughts and prayers are also with all those families whose loved ones have been found in recent days. <coughs> May God comfort you and give you all the strength that you need during this difficult hour. And our thoughts and hearts are with all the families and with all the loved ones whose relatives and loved ones have not been accounted for. And they're all anticipating and waiting for a miracle. We're here together hoping for the best, embracing each other during a surreal week, a devastating week, since this unfathomable tragedy on Thursday, last Thursday. So I was sitting Sunday on the couch in my house, and I was thinking about this tragedy, and I was thinking about the classes and lectures I'm going to be giving this week, including our weekly Tuesday morning class, and I was wondering, you know, what's... What should I say? What should I not say? Just to talk about other subjects, it seems like inappropriate to talk about this subject. And what am I supposed to say? And I was just musing and allowing my mind to roam. And then suddenly I had this, I don't know, epiphany, you know, this aha moment. Something just came into my head. And I remembered something I came across years ago. I was still a yeshiva student. But it left such an impression on me, and it just came back. And yesterday, I spent many hours studying it. And let me tell you what it is. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Endel of blessed memory, married the daughter of the previous, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, in 1927 in Warsaw. Then he went with his wife, and they moved to Berlin. He already moved to Berlin a little before his wedding. And he and his wife, Rebetzin Chayamushka, lived in Berlin until Hitler came to power in 1933. And then they left Berlin and they moved to Paris. The Rebbe, whoever saw the Rebbe, knew the Rebbe, knew he was a very clandestine, a very quiet person. He, so to speak, kept to himself. And it was very rare in those years that people would know about his brain, his wisdom, his greatness, his piety. But on Sukkot, 1932, he came to visit his father-in-law. He traveled from Berlin with his wife. They traveled from Berlin to Riga. His father-in-law was living in Riga in Latvia. He escaped Stalinist Russia a few years earlier. And his father-in-law, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, asked him to hold a Fabrengen, a gathering of Torah and inspiration with the, with the yeshiva boys, with the Hasidim, on Sukkot 1932 in Riga. So the Rebbe, he was known then as the Ramash, later become the Lubavitcher Rebbe, sat all night in the sukkah with yeshiva students and other chassidim there in Riga. 
Chalamayat Sukkot Tafresh Sadegimel 1932. It was a long, long fabrengen that was recalled by some of the students years later. What impression it made on them, and nobody had a record of it. After the Rebbe's passing in 1994, they found in his room many personal journals and writings, including a transcript of that Fabrengen of Sukkot 1932 in Riga. It was published subsequently, close to 90 pages of that evening. So suddenly, years, years later, decades later, they discovered a transcript that the Rebbe himself wrote, either probably afterwards, of what he is, he said that sukkah as he spoke throughout the night in the sukkah of the yeshiva, the Lubavitcher yeshiva, in Riga, Latvia, Sukkot Tafir Sadegimel, 1932, was published in uh, the late 90s in a book called Rishimois, volume 15. When it was published, I learned it. It's very, very deep, very complex, serious, serious Talmudic analysis. And then I remembered that for a few hours, most of that, most of that Fabrengen, I should say 50% of it, is dedicated to the laws that deal with searching for people who may be trapped in the rubble when a building collapses. And he analyzes it in detail and dissects it and speaks about it. And he spoke about it for a few hours. Why he chose particularly that topic to speak about for a few hours that night, I don't know. But from the 90 pages, a few dozen pages are dedicated to this Mishnah in Tractate Yuma, page 83, which happens to be what many people are going to be learning this week during the Daf Yomi. <laughs> Literally this week. So this all came back to me, and I opened it up. I went to my bookcase, I opened it up, and I spent a few hours learning through this uh, this kuntras, this Rishima, this Fabreng, and as I told you, it's close to 90 pages, and it's very deep and very intricate. And then I thought, you know, this would be appropriate to learn. Such a sensitive and such a difficult and such a challenging week with so much devastation and so much pain and yet so much hope and so much unity and so much anticipation, so much confusion and uncertainty. But as I was reading it, it gave me courage, it gave me empowerment, it gave me inspiration, it gave me perspective, it gave me hope, it gave me vigor, it gave me love, it gave me light. And I thought I want to learn this with you today as well. So let's begin. Again, I chose, it's 90 pages. I chose two or three pages to learn inside because I knew we couldn't learn 90 pages. And it's very, as I told you, it's very intricate. It's very deep. It's extremely profound. And it goes from one subject to another subject, analyzing the laws in a very nuanced and granular way, discussing it both from a halachic perspective, a Talmudic perspective, and then a spiritual perspective, an emotional perspective. So I chose literally a few of the hundreds and hundreds of ideas that are discussed. I'm saying this because I just want to tell you that we're, I chose literally one aspect of a very long and elaborate conversation and discussion of the Lubavitcher Rebbe back in 30, 1932, which means it's 88 years ago. Okay, so if you open your source sheet already, that's great. Afterwards, I will take some questions. After I'm done, I will take some questions. And let's dedicate all of this learning in the merit of all those, all those who have not been accounted for yet 
in this disaster in Surfside, Florida, and for all of their families and all of their loved ones and all of their friends who are waiting in anticipation. May God protect them and save them. May God protect and give everybody the strength and inspiration you need and we need at this time. And of course, in tribute, in the loving memory of all those who perished in this disaster. <laughs> may their memory never dissipate from us and may they serve as an eternal inspiration and may God give their families a lot of strength during a very difficult, challenging time. Let's begin with the source sheets. We begin with a Mishnah in Yuma, Dafpei Gimel Amur Aleph. That's the tractate Yuma 33a, not 33, 83a. And as I said before, that in a few days, many, many Jews in Florida and around the world will be learning this in their classes of Daf Yoimi, where they're holding now tractate Yuma, just literally a few pages before this. Says the Mishnah, and I quote, Mi shenofla lov mapoilas. If a mapoilas, a mapoilas is a collapsed building, falls on someone. Now what happens if Shabbos comes and we know that the observance of Shabbos is of highest priority in Jewish life and it's one of the fundamentals of Jewish existence. What do they say? More than Jews kept Shabbos, the Shabbos kept the Jews. Shabbos is a fundamental mitzvah. It's already mentioned in the Ten Commandments. And it's basically showing respect to life, to the rhythm of life, and to the creator of all life. Working on Shabbos is a grave sin and a betrayal of the divine blueprint for existence. Often, digging through rubble involves violating the Shabbos. Says the Mishnah, it doesn't matter. Even if it's Shabbos... The, the building collapsed on Shabbos, or the search for the people is going on on Shabbos. is like this. There may be nobody there. A building collapsed, and it's possible that nobody is there. So he says, Suffolk, Husham, Suffolk, Enisham, even if it's doubtful whether a person is there or a person is not there, which means there may be no life in danger, it's just a building that collapsed. Furthermore, Suffolk, Chai, Suffolk, Mays, even if a person may be there, there is a doubt if the person is still alive or the person has already died. So therefore, to violate the Shabbos, to search through the rubble, to find somebody who passed away, you can already deal with that after Shabbos. Furthermore, one does not even know if this person who may be there and who may be alive or may not be alive is a Jew or a Gentile. Regardless, no matter, says the Mishnah, mefakhin alav esagal. You have to clear the rubble heap from this person. Do everything you can, never give up, continue to dig and search for possible rescue, even though you're not sure you're going to rescue anybody. And you're certainly violating the Shabbos. It could be Shabbos, it could be the holiday, it could be Yom Kippur, and you're not allowed to regular under ordinary circumstances. Do any of this work. But to save, even possibly and potentially, even if there are many doubts, and statistically... It seems that the news is grim and there's no hope. The Mishnah says, don't worry about statistics now. You could say, maybe there's nobody there. And even if there's a person there, I'm not sure he's alive. And you don't know who the, you don't even know if anybody is there. So the Mishnah says, I don't care if you don't know if somebody, if you know somebody is there, you don't know they're there. I don't care if you're not sure if they're alive or dead. You say, you know, I don't care who it is. It could be a Jew there, it could be a Gentile there, you don't know. 
continue to clear the rubble. Mefakchin alavas agal. Agal is the heap, the, the heap of rubble in which a person may potentially be buried under. Heaven forbid, continue to clear it. And the Mishnah says, Mitzau chai. If you discover the person alive, Mefakchin, of course, continue. Continue to clear the rubble to extract them. Vimeis. If you find that the person has passed away already, then Yanichu, just leave him alone. You don't have to continue the work on Shabbos. You can extract the body, the corpse, after Shabbos. The Talmud asks, what do you mean if you find him alive, you should continue to clear the rubble? Obviously, what are we going to think? That way you should just leave him there? Obviously. So the the Gemara says later, a few pages later, page 85, the idea is even if you see that the person won't be able to live long, the person is, is, is literally breathing their last. So you might think, okay, let them, let them die in peace, let them stay here, it's Shabbos, let me go. He says, no, 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 even for an hour, even for a moment, even if you see that the circumstances, the physical sense are very grim, it overrides everything. And you must take out the body. They must take out this living person. This is the Mishnah in Yuma, And this is the basis of the idea in Judaism that... We never, ever give up. As long as there is any glimmer of hope, we don't give up. We don't look at statistics. We don't say it's unlikely, the chances are slim. Even if I have to violate every law in the world. As the Gemara says, the Pasuk says, You should live through the mitzvahs, not die through the mitzvahs. If a mitzvah could cause the death of a Jewish soul, then that's not a mitzvah God wants you to do. So if by me keeping Shabbos, observing Shabbos, can cause, there's even the slightest chance that it could cause the antithesis of life, then Shabbos must be obliterated, must be violated in order to save a life. This is the Mishnah Yuma 83. Comes the Gemara Yuma Peheya all of the next piece in the source sheets, Yuma 85. Tana Rabbanan, the rabbis, asked the question, Adhechan Hubaydik. How far should one check if the victim's body shows no sign of life? As we said, a person is digging through, clearing the rubble on Shabbos or on Yom Kippur, on the holidays. If they find life, then of course you extract the person. If the person passed away, you could leave them there till after Shabbos. But how long should you check? How far should you check? If a victim's body shows no signs of life, he says, Ad you check until the nose, meaning you're going up, you find the legs, you check, you check, you check, you check till the nose. V'yeshaimrim, another opinion is ad libay, until the person's heart. You don't have to check to the nose. If you check to the heart and you see that there's absolutely no sign of vitality and life, you can assume the person passed away. The halacha is like the first opinion. The law in Shulchan Aruch, in Arachayim, Hilcha Shabbos, Semen Shin, Chavtes, 329 is that even if the heart shows absolutely no sign of life, no sign of vitality, you don't give up. You continue to go higher and higher. You check for every last expression of glimmer of life, vitality. Of course, this is talking about, this was written around 2000, close to 2,000 years ago with the technology that was available then, very little, very different today. But you check till... In other words, don't only rely on the heart. Go till the nose, that is the law. Badak, what happened, says the Gemara, if one checked, umatzel yoyne and they find that those 
who were located in the upper parts of the rubble heap have passed away. Lo yoimar, don't say, Certainly those who are located in the lower parts of the rubble have certainly passed away. Do not say that. In other words, don't make any assumptions. If there is a rubble heap, if a building collapsed, and you see that people on the top have passed away, so therefore you say people who are lower than that for sure are gone. Do not say that. In fact, Maisa, Haya, let me tell you about a story. The Gemara says there was an incident. There was a building that collapsed, and they found that the higher ones have passed away. But those who were buried below were alive. So therefore, don't make any presumptions, don't make any calculations. You continue to search and search and search. Do not give up. Do not give up. Don't make any conclusions. Search for any possible person who may be stuck there and try to save them. And this is the basis of the Jewish approach and the Jewish law to saving a life any day of the week, any moment of the week, regardless of the statistics. And certainly this day, our hopes, our prayers, is that the team of rescuers should be successful in finding (coughs) all those precious, precious, beloved people and souls, husbands and wives, young and old, mothers and fathers, grandparents, siblings and spouses, friends to many of you, relatives, children, parents who are trapped under the rubble. Now, we go to the next stage. Every single law in Judaism could be learned on two levels. On a concrete, physical, practical level, We're talking about rubble, we're talking about a heap, we're talking about a building, we're talking about physical, the physical work of searching and rescuing. But every single law also exists on an emotional, spiritual level. And this is a fascinating idea. Whenever you learn Mishnah, you learn Talmud, or you learn Jewish law, you can always understand it on different levels. There's the concrete interpretation of every particular mitzvah, what it means in a very physical, literal sense. But you also have the ability to be able to see it on a metaphysical level. It's just like with a person. A person has a body and a person has a soul. I could look at your body and see the concrete physical manifestation of life. But there are also deeper components that I may not be able to see with my eyes. But they still exist. My deeper emotions, my deeper values, my deeper experiences, my deeper ideas. And both are what make up the miracle of life. And the same is true with Torah. There's the body of Torah, which is the concrete manifestation of Torah. Every halacha has a concrete, physical, and very technical interpretation of what it means in a physical reality. But the very same law can also be understood and appreciated and studied from a spiritual perspective. And both are completely synthesized with each other. They reflect each other like the body reflects the soul. And the soul is mirrored in the body, and the body mirrors the soul. So here, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, this Fabregen that I spoke before about, Sukkot, Tofresh Tzadagimel, 1932, in Riga, in Latvia, 
analyzes everything we learn today from a spiritual perspective. There's a collapse building that falls on somebody. We're not sure he's there. We're not sure he's not there. We don't know if he's there or not there. We don't know if he's alive or dead. We don't know if he's a Jew or a non-Jew. You continue, continue to search through the rubble. And then there's the argument if you search only to the heart or you go to the nose. And then there's the idea, never assume that because the higher ones are gone, the lower ones are also have also passed away. What does all of this mean in my life, in your life? What is the lesson for us? And when we learn about this, when we learn about the lessons of these laws in our lives, it's something that we can do. I cannot physically rescue. I don't have the tools. I don't have the skills. I don't have the training. I don't have the know-how. I could pray. I could support. I could give love. We can be here for each other. And I can also, and we can also, look into ourselves and rebuild those structures within our lives that need help, that need repair, because we're all connected and the whole world is connected. So let's see what all of these laws means in a personal, psychological, emotional, and spiritual way. So continue, scroll down in your source sheets again. Those who want to go to the source sheets, if you're on Zoom, you can go to the chat and you have a link. You can go to theyeshiva.net and go to the top video. The Rebbe speaks about never giving hope, never giving up on people who may be stuck in the rubble, and the source sheets are above the video and below the video. Either view source sheets or below download, okay? So we continue now on the source sheets, go to, we start at page one, go now to page two. The second paragraph from the bottom of the page. In the previous paragraph, he quotes the whole Mishnah and Gemara that we just learned together, so I'm not going to do that again. And then he continues. This is the... This is, I have to say, this is a transcript, a private one of the Rebbe. He wrote this for himself. This is not something he gave out to publish. He wrote it in, back in the 30s. He was not a Rebbe then. He was studying engineering from all, uh, he was studying engineering in Berlin. And he, he, he wrote this. So he wrote this for himself. So it's very brief. It's very concise. It's somewhat cryptic. There's a lot of parentheses that he didn't fill in. Uh, so it needs explanation. I'm going to explain it the way I understood it. But I'm just telling you, it's written in a very cryptic and brief and concise fashion, and there's a lot of information compressed in very brief words, because this was like a personal journal that he kept. As I said, it was discovered many, many years later in 1994 and published in the subsequent years. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says, I would like to suggest how to understand this whole conversation, all of these laws, from the Hasidic perspective. Meaning, how do we explain it from a metaphysical, spiritual, and emotional point of view? Because this is one of the main functions of the teachings of Hasidus is to excavate, no pun intended, and to search for the inner spiritual rhythm and music behind every single law, behind every single mitzvah. You know, sometimes people learn Gemara, they learn Halacha. Some people find it monotonous. They find it a little boring. It gets very technical. It's like most of these things are not relevant. Many of these things are not relevant to my daily life. I'm not a rabbi. I'm not an expert in law. But the truth is, once, first of all, you probably don't have a good teacher because you have a good teacher, you wouldn't find it uh, boring. But besides that, in other words, if you really understand it, you won't find it boring. But in addition to that, once you discover that every single discussion in Mishnah and in Gemara, and in Halacha, Jewish law, is really a discussion about love, about relationships, about psychology, 
about human growth, about human development, about the struggles and hopes and longings and yearnings and challenges that each of us face within our own brains and our own hearts and our own relationships with ourselves and with our loved ones and with our children and with our spouses and with other people. Then suddenly you see in these laws, not just technical laws about certain scenarios, some of them may be far-fetched and irrelevant in 2021, but really a blueprint for the personal journeys that every single one of us navigate in our world and in our life, wherever you are and whatever situation you are, especially as we're struggling with mental or physical or emotional or financial or spiritual question, dilemmas and challenges each person in their own way. So he says, I want to suggest the explanation of this Mishnah and Gemara from the spiritual perspective. And he says, it's only a possible explanation. There may be others. And then humbly he says, and may God forgive me if I'm making an error. You see how the Rebbe writes, if I'm making an error, may God forgive me. And he begins. Mapoilus. What is a mapoilus? We spoke about a mapoilus falling. We don't know if there's somebody there. But what is a mapoilus? Mapoilus is bingin shenafal. It's basically a building that collapsed, a home, a structure, a mansion, a tower, a binyan, an edifice that fell. Or it's a heap of stones, but it's not organized. There's no coordination. There's no, generally, a building that stands, it's all about structure. But a mapilus is when it's destroyed. So you have all the rocks there but it is, it's a heap, it's disorganized. In other words, a collapsed building is essentially, so to speak, no different from a standing one if you miss the point of what a building is. The mass and the weight are not changed, nor has the composition of the materials changed. Every brick and every beam, every nail and every window pane, every piece of furniture and every utensil is still there. But what changed, and this changes everything, is the arrangement vis-a-vis each other. What a difference. One spells life, and one spells disaster. On the one hand, when you have a structure that is coordinated and organized, you have a home, an edifice that's containing an array of rooms, each designed and equipped to serve the needs of its inhabitants. On the other hand, a mapilus, a binyan shanafa, is what? You have a pile of rubble that poses mortal danger for anyone who's caught inside. So that is what a mapilus is. It's the same structure, same exact structure, same mass, same weight. All the materials are there, but there's no order, there's no rhythm, there's no coordination. Collapsed, and therefore it poses mortal danger. What does this mean in my own inner life, in our inner life? We know what it means physically. Sadly, we know what it means physically. But what does this mean in our own inner life? The whole world is really one large edifice, one large structure. It's like a person. Ecclesiastes Kaheles calls the human being a miniature universe. 
We are a micro-universe. Kamo Amru. Our sages say in the Medrash, Avaz de Rebnasan, Whatever exists in the macro, exists in the micro. Every human being is a miniature universe. What's the unique feature of biology? Structure. Organization. There is a holistic system that defines human life. A person is made up of 70 or 80 trillion cells. Trillion! Each cell has its unique function in the overall structure of biology of a person's life and of every creature. So the Rebbe says the world is a mirror of a person and the person is a mirror of the world. And when we say the world here, we mean our planet and our universe. So just as the human being is a self-contained biological living reality, living organism, this is true about the whole world. Our sages therefore say in Shabbos, Ayin Zayin, Ein Dover Ba'olam Levatala. Shabbos Ayin Zayin Beis. There's nothing in the world that is in vain, that is meaningless, that is valueless, that is inconsequential. Just like in a person's life, every single cell serves its function. Every single dimension within our flesh and our blood and our sinews, every neuron, every gene, Every component of the body has its purpose in the overall miracle that we call the living organism of a living creature. Same is true in the world. And this itself proves that the world was created, the world was conceived, the world emerged into existence by an intelligent consciousness that willed its existence. Ein Sefer wrote a book called Sefer Achkira, which means the book of scientific inquiry, where he discusses this at length. All of this is quite obvious to somebody who's searching for the truth. <laughs> and that's the prerequisite, Choyker Emes. Choyker Emes means a researcher who's looking for one thing, Emes and only Emes. No confirmation bias, no preconceived notions, not allowing my own pain or my own agendas to dictate the results. But somebody who's truly a Choyker Emes, a true researcher, meaning, what do you mean a true researcher? Somebody who's really searching for the truth and only for the truth. This is an obvious conclusion. Not everybody has to research everything. It can also be accepted through faith, through emuna, by every single Jew. But those whose vision is eclipsed, and they look at the world and they say, there is no order and there's no judge. And every person can do whatever they want. Might, might makes right. There is no master. You are a random mutation. You are a random error. Life is meaningless. Life is a mistake. All of existence is just a random piece of luck. And therefore you are an intense, in, infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity. Your life amounts to nothing. says the Rebbe, in this person's imagination, the person takes a structured mansion and turns it into 
a collapsed building. Now there's a heap of rubble. The world essentially is what? The world is the most structured, coordinated, incredible mansion that has ever been constructed. And when you see the world for that truth, you right away understand, just like when you're looking at a building, and you're looking at a tower, you understand that there was somebody involved in construction. It didn't just all happen here by chance. Why? Maybe it happened by chance. Maybe an avalanche and a hurricane and a tsunami (laughs) created all of the apartments. So you're laughing because it would be a joke. You're not creating a condo, you're not creating a building, you're not creating a tower, you're certainly not creating a hundred buildings in a whole city and a whole country through an avalanche. And what about the world? The most sophisticated building in the world pales in comparison, and not just pales, it pales infinitely in comparison to the engineering in one leaf or in one worm or in one cell. But there are two types of people. They live in two different worlds. There's a person who lives in a world and they look at the world and they see a symphony. They see architecture. They see the beauty. In other words, they see the they see the presence of a creator in every single element of creation. But then there's another person who takes a most beautiful world, but in their imagination, I'm living in rubble. And I'm buried beneath the rubble. I'm living in a collapsed building. I'm living in a world that where everything is a random error. There's no purpose. There's no design. Ah, you look at all of the designs, so you find explanations. You find rationalizations. You find justifications. But the bottom line is, there's nobody behind it. There's no consciousness behind it. There's no love behind it. There's no purpose behind it. There's no meaning behind it. There's no order behind it. There's no creator behind it. There's no this purpose. There's no design behind it. So what's really an astoundingly beautiful world in this person's mind, he says, is a mapilus. It's a collapsed building. There's the famous expression of the Chavis Alavavis, the 11th century Rabbeinu Bechai Ibn Pekudah. He has a book called Duties of the Heart, Chavis Alavavis. And in chapter, in the Portal of Unity, chapter 6, he says, when we contemplate the world, this, he, he wrote in Arabic, he says, when we contemplate this world, we find it, we find it so organized and so arranged. He says, there's no part of it that doesn't display an element of composition and coordination and organization and structure and engineering. He says, to our senses and intellect, if you study our planet and our universe, he says, it appears like a built and furnished home where all of our needs are prepared. You come into a house and all your needs are prepared. He says, the sky above is like the roof. The earth below is like the carpet. The stars in their array are like candles. All the objects gathered in it are like the treasures of the home. Everything has its purpose and its need. And he says the person, the human being, is the master of the home who he gets to use and enjoy everything that's in the home. The various types of plants prepared for the benefit of animal and then human life. The various kinds of animals. This is what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is writing in the 10 hundreds. He says, take a look at the order of sunrise and sunset establishing daytime and nighttime, allowing for vegetation and produce and hibernation, allowing for the different seasons, which allows for vegetation and produce to continue, 
allowing for cold and heat, for summer and winter, for the seasons and all of their benefits and all of the changes without interruption. He says, look at the orbits of the planets and all their movements and the stars and the constellations with their precise movements and order. Rabbeinu Bechai Ibn Pekuda writes in the duties of the heart. Never straying and never changing and everything ultimately is here to be able to support life on the planet. So what the Lubavitcher Rebbe is telling us here is I could live in two different worlds. I could live in a world where I appreciate the fact that there is divine providence that orchestrates every detail of our lives and every detail of creation. There is a creator that produced the world, that conceived the world in love, and everything is part of a holistic, unified picture. Just like when you come into a building, a functioning building, and the engineering of it, the architecture of it, and then the contractor who did it, it's astounding. Every pipe is in its place. And every piece of furniture, and the electricity is its place, the plumbing, every dimension, every wire, every room, every piece of furniture has its place and its function to be able ultimately to support the purpose, support the person living there and having their needs. He says, look at our planet. To be able to say that so many things are coordinated together and there was nobody behind it, he says, is, 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 is beyond absurd. But you have to be looking for truth. And when I'm not looking for truth, I turn the world into a mapoilus, into a, so to speak, a collapsed building of complete disarray. And the truth is, the more we study our planet, the more we study our lives, the more we study our bodies, our brains, the more we study a tree, a plant, the more we study nature, the more we see and appreciate how intricately everything is coordinated and organized. And so many things are working together in perfect synthesis and integration to be able to allow for that reality we call life. There are hundreds and thousands and thousands of examples we can give. But just take one component of this type of coordination, which turns the world into a koima shlema, into an organized structure. The sun warms the sea and evaporates the water. So the vapor rises and forms clouds. But if the water would come down from the clouds back into the sea, the rest of earth would be infertile desert. Nobody would be able to live. There would be no vegetation, no produce. Animals would not live. Men, humans would not live. So now you have the winds. And the winds are the conveyors that carry the clouds across the earth. So now when the rain comes, it doesn't just go back into the sea where it came from. But it creates the miracle of vegetation, of botany. So the rain now brings the water into the ground, but gravity causes the excess waters to flow back into the sea. So they're ready to repeat this cyclical journey once again. And on this cycle, all of life depends. If the sun was a little smaller or the sun was further away, the rate of evaporation would be too small to provide the earth with rain. If the sun was larger, or closer to earth, the rate of evaporation would make life impossible. And every living thing would be scorched and burnt. It would be too dry to live. If the winds had not functioned the way they operate and they would not carry the clouds into the distance, as I said, the rain would fall back into the sea and everything would be desolate. If the gravity on earth was as light as on other planets, 
the rain would not flow back to the sea and the cycle would not be able to resume. If gravity was stronger, the rain would fall like hail and it would destroy all the vegetation rather than give the earth the potential to grow. If the rotation of earth around its axis was slower, the day would be so long that the vegetation would be dried up by the sun. The lightning that erupts during rainstorms allows the nitrogen and the oxygen in the air to unite, to fertilize the soil and give us the amino acid we need to form cells. How are we supposed to access nitrogen? And the answer is the lightning allows the nitrogen to converge with the oxygen. So now the earth, the soil, gets those nutrients that we and animals all need for our amino acids with which we could not live. The more you study this, the more you observe this, the more you see this in every single aspect of creation, the more you realize that yesh balabayis labirizu, that this is a home that was built, that was structured, it was conceived with purpose, with love. I'll give you another very interesting thing people don't realize. You know, the colder the water becomes, the denser and heavier it is. Cold layers of water sink naturally. So the waters in, 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 in ponds and lakes and rivers that are exposed to the cold, the upper layer is expected to freeze and sink to the depths because it's heavier. And what would happen? Everything would turn into ice and all marine life, all life in the water would be destroyed. Everything would be destroyed. Does that happen? Why even in the coldest climates, there's winter. The ocean, the seas, the lakes are ice. Everything should be ice. Everything alive in the water should be destroyed, dead. And all we should have over there is dirt and and toxicity. That's not what happens. Something unique happens, and it's incredible. When water reaches 4 degrees Celsius, the process is reversed the water begins to expand, becomes lighter, and it rises to the top. (laughs) Till four degrees, it's becoming heavier and heavier. Once it reaches four degrees, the process is reversed. So now the top layers freeze, they protect the deeper layers, the temperature is maintained, and life can exist. Had even one detail of any of the above been missing, life and earth would not have been possible. Is it likely that all of these combinations... All the laws of nature and countless other wonderful combinations are all the result of blind randomness. Never mind when you study the DNA existing in a plant, in a tree, in a mosquito, in a bee, in a mammal, in a bird, in a, in a reptile, in a human being. The DNA code, never mind when you analyze the 80 trillion cells, never mind you analyze the 100 billion neurons in the brain. Martin Rees is considered one of the greatest scientists and astronomers today. And he has, uh, he has his book, he explains how after the Big Bang, the fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the forces of nature had to be so exact. And if any one of them would be missing or would be off by even a milli, 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 say a million other billion times, Survival could not happen. The universe could not be formed. Our planet could not support life. You're talking here about constants that are so fine-tuned 
seconds after the Big Bang, that the likelihood for all of this to have happened randomly is simply absurd. So the Rebbe tells us here, when you look at this, it's obvious that yesh din v'yesh dayan. There is a consciousness behind it all. But if I'm blind, I live in a world that has collapsed. There's no order. There's no structure. All the materials are here. I enjoy the oceans and I enjoy the lakes. I enjoy plant life and I enjoy land. I enjoy my body and I enjoy my brain. But what do I say? I say there's no order. There's absolute disarray. Now we go to the next step. He analyzes this even further and deeper in the next few paragraphs. Go to the next, now go to the last paragraph on page nine. What do we do now? He says, What we need to do now is we have to clear up the rubble. One second. Why does the Mishnah say mefakchen? The Mishnah said mefanen. Mefanen means clear up the rubble. It says mefakchen. He says pikeach loshen chachma. Bechachma is bariru veloshen pikeach ivrim. Mefakchen as hagal in Hebrew could mean clear up the rubble. It can also mean from the word pikeach, which means develop wisdom. And also from the word pikeach, which means vision, to see pikeach ivrim. He opens the eyes of the blind, one of the blessings in the morning. We have to open up a person's eyes and open up a person's perception that a person should be wise. The, the Talmud says, Who is a wise person? Somebody who sees that which is being born. Literally it means wise people look at the future, not only at the present. But there's a deeper interpretation. One needs to open their eyes to be able to see that the whole world is being born. It's being born. It was born and is being born from a state of nothingness, emerging into a state of somethingness through the Creator. Because this too is one of the fascinating components of the creation. You know, for thousands of years, atheists maintained that the world was always here. If the world is always here, it doesn't need a Creator. But only in the 1920s, in the last century, do now most, since the 1920s, most scientists now agree to the theory of the Big Bang. And one of the revolutions of the theory of the Big Bang is that it confirmed the opening word of Torah. Veracious. There's a beginning. The Big Bang means there's a beginning. There's a beginning. A beginning to the universe. But one second. How can something come from nothing? Nothing doesn't produce something. Something can develop perhaps into another something. But how does something come from nothing? How does ayin come to yesh? Ex nihilo, as they say in Latin. How do, how do you do that? If you take a cup, and the cup is empty, and there's no water in the cup, and you suction out all over the air, so it's now a completely empty cup, you turn it over and you leave it there for 10 years, and then you pick it up, are you going to expect to find something there? And what if you leave it there for a million years? And what if you leave it there for a billion years? Nothing is supposed to happen. How does something happen to nothing to create something? From nothing can't come something. And since we know that from nothing came something, therefore we say that that nothing is really not nothing, but it's no thing. Nothingness is no thingness, which means it's not a thing, it's not tangible, it's not matter. M-A-T-T-E-R, it's what we call 
divine infinity, which is no thingness. It's ayin. It's no thingness. So a building that collapsed, what does it mean that I'm living under a building that collapsed? means I'm living in a world that I believe has no meaning, has no purpose. I don't see the love. I don't see the soul. I don't see the consciousness. I don't see the divine alignment. When I walk into my home, I expect to see everything has its space because I know somebody built this home. And when my, when my contractor puts the air, puts the place for the refrigerator in a wrong place or the place for the couch in a different place that I expected, or the dining room was supposed to be designed this way and it's designed this way, so then the person who hired the contractor struggles and fights and wants his money back. And, you know, it's not an easy task because everything has to have its place. But when you look at the planet, where even one leaf and one worm is an incredible feat of astounding, astounding brilliance and engineering. I say, nah, it just happened. (laughs) It just happened. I saw Rabbi Avigdor Miller of Blessed Mary in his book, Rejoice, O Youth. He says, if all we would find on our planet was one leaf from a tree, it would be sufficient evidence that the world has a creator. Just one leaf from one tree. You look at photosynthesis, you say, of course, of course trees know how to take sunlight and turn it into glucose, sugar. Of course roots know exactly how to develop and go deep down and make sure they spread and they get the water and the nutrients they need so they could feed the tree and give it its soul and give it its life. We just expect it. Of course your cell knows how to replicate itself and become 80 trillion cells and develop into the human body. And the fetus is ready to be born, of course. But the truth is why, of course. I could live in a world of terrible confusion and darkness. All the rocks are here, all the stones are here, but I don't see it. The Rebbe continues, I'm going to say this outside, that stones are a metaphor for letters. Just like stones build up homes, letters build up words, because every speech is really construction. When you give a speech... It's about constructing. It's construction. That's why you don't just give a speech. You have to construct a speech. You have to construct a presentation. Letters form words. Words form sentences. Sentences form paragraphs. Paragraphs form chapters. Chapters form books. And that's what the world really is. It's divine DNA. God created the world through letters. DNA, yes. DNA is can, are, today are defined as letters. And that's the dictionary that all of the living organisms have been using. The same dictionary. The same sequence. Is that also a random mistake? Not exactly the same sequence. It's the different sequences that create the tiny variations between creatures and other creatures. We share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees and 50% of our DNA with bananas. And every single, every single creature has its unique chemistry and composition, physiological composition, based on the divine DNA that creates it and sustains it. And those are the divine letters. They're like rocks and stones and pieces of wood that create the structure of every living creature. But what happens when I don't see the divine energy in everything? And everything just is one big mishmash. I don't recognize the spirituality of the universe, the organic oneness of the universe, the organic oneness in me and in you and in all of us together. I'm living in a collapsed world. So what do we need? We need every person who can to go and clear the rubble, to help a person who lives in a universe 
that is deconstructed, in a reality that is deconstructed. Help them open their eyes. Help myself and my fellow human being gain perception, gain perspective. Not live in a world of despair, in a world of hope, in a world of disalignment, in a world that I feel that I am a mistake. My children are mistakes. Everything is a mistake. That's why the mission doesn't say you don't clear up the rubble which intimates also the spiritual work of opening up our eyes to be able to see, to perceive reality. And he continues and to understand that creation has a purpose to reveal the oneness. The Navi Yeshaya says, God says, I created the earth and I created the human on that earth. Begematria Taryang. So it says in Kabbalah, Mikdash Melech, Barasi is the numerical value of 613. Bez, Resh, Aleph, Saf, Yud is 613. I made land, I made the earth, God says, and I created Adam on this earth, Barasi, with the purpose of observing the 613 mitzvahs. Through this, the person will repair and fix and complete that which God created for us to complete. It says in Bereshus, by Yechulu HaShemayim, God finished the work in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And then it says, by so he sanctified the seventh day. We say it in the Kiddush of Friday night. God rested on the seventh day from everything that he created, and then the Pasuk adds the word lasas, to do. Everything he created to do, what does that mean? Everything he created, he rested from his act of creation. No, So our sages say, God didn't just create the world, he created the world lasas, that we should be co-partners, we should continue the work. Lasas lasakeng. I wasn't placed here on earth just to be a master of a home and manipulate the universe for my own narcissistic needs. No. I was placed on the world with a mission, with a purpose. Lassois. He created the world Lassois for us to continue to do the work of Tikkun. It's not enough just to save myself from my own rubble. My job is to take this heap of rubble and turn it into a splendid structure. This is the idea that the Medrash says, God built the world in order for it to be destroyed, and he destroyed a world in order for it to be rebuilt. In Kabbalah we have the concept of the world of chaos that was built in order to be destroyed, destroyed in order to be rebuilt into Olam HaTikun. We all face in our world chaos, Confusion, depression, mental illness, conflict, animosity, deep fears and insecurities that overwhelm us. And that's like basically our buildings collapse, our mind collapses, our souls collapse. We emotionally collapse. You know, a person says, I can't take it anymore. I'm giving up. I'm collapsing. I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart. I do not see myself as part of a cohesive universe. I don't see myself in the context of wholeness, of organic oneness, of love. I'm falling apart. I'm fragmented. Why? Because I'm not anchored in the oneness. I'm not anchored in the source. I'm not anchored in that which contains and combines and structures the entire universe. And my job is to be able to rebuild, 
to be able to take my chaos, to be able to take my pain, to be able to take my confusion, to be able to take my traumas and turn them into springboards for awareness, for rejuvenation, for rebirth, for creating a world which begins with my own world, creating a home, creating an inner life in which I could see their music and I could, I could dance till the end of love and I can dance with this symphonic divine vibrations that vibrates through the universe and realize that I am part of a cosmic symphony and every one of us is an indispensable note in God's cosmic symphony and every single one of us is an indispensable rock. An indispensable power of strength in the divine structure called the universe for me to be able to fix and bring in the light that I have to bring into the world. So he says, don't just extract yourself. No, rebuild the world. We come into a world where there is corruption, where there is hate, where there is violence, where there is aggression, where there is bloodshed, where there is disunity, where there is a lack of integrity, where there is hatred, and where there is trauma and pain. We come into a world and it's easy to surrender to the idea that it's a mapoilus, it's a collapsed universe. What is the job of every person? to reach out to themselves and to reach out to every person they can and help them get out of such a perception of life and be able to realize, no, you were placed here by purpose and you are exactly where you have to be and you are exactly who you have to be. You are perfect, you're impeccable at your core, you are flawless, you're a piece of divine ingenuity and design in order to be able to fulfill your purpose. And then you consolidate a world through Torah and mitzvahs, which are the blueprint to be able to restore the world back to its innate harmony and innate glory that was imagined by the Creator. And here, briefly, I'm going to do this by heart, because the inside it continues for many, many more pages. There are three doubts. And those are the three doubts we discussed, and we're going to discuss them now spiritually. We established that no matter when it is and who it is, you have to go and search through the rubble. Never stand by the blood of your brother. I cannot envelop myself in my personal Shabbos sanctity and say that I am aloof from a chaotic world. No, I must labor to clear the rubble heap for myself and my fellow human being and enlighten them, educate them, love them by teaching them by example. When the spiritual world is in jeopardy, I have to violate my own Shabbos, my own tranquility, my own serenity to be able to help other people get out of the mess. Because the world, as we said, is a complex structure. Its design and purposefulness is evident to an observer who's unbiased. But we have free choice. And I can choose to ignore the obvious. I can view the world as a haphazard pile of rubble, a mishmash of elements, of creatures, laws without origin, without direction, without purpose. And such a person is comparable to somebody who has been buried by a mapoilus, somebody who inhabits creation, not as a resident of a divine home, but as one who is overwhelmed by a meaningless, capricious, and soul-crushing mound of debris. Do you wake up in the morning and say, 
I am a resident of God's home and I have my unique role to play today. Or I wake up to a world and I say, this is so depressing. This is so meaningless. This is so capricious. This is so chaotic. This is so sad. Which world do you wake up into? So the Rebbe says, some of us wake up into a world that crushes us. I don't feel happiness. I don't feel my dignity. I don't feel my purposefulness. I don't feel that I'm an ambassador of the divine, an ambassador of love, light, and hope. I feel that I am a random mistake, and we all have those moments. This is not either or. It's not a black and white question. I have those moments when I wake up into a world that is so confusing, and I feel it's a meaningless place. And I'm overwhelmed by the anxiety and the stress of it all. What is anxiety and stress if not feeling that things are falling all over the place and I don't know how to contain them? What is anxiety if not this? I have never seen a better definition for anxiety than this piece of work, Mapilus. In Talmud, it's called Mapilus. Things are falling apart and I have no place to put them. I don't see where they belong. I can't make order out of them. So I'm just overwhelmed. And I either space out, detach, shut down, get angry, passive aggressive, or just go, you know, surrender to some addictions or some other distractions. I can always take my phone and uh, distract myself from this disaster. And what's our job? Mefakhin alava sagal. Shabbos, weekdays, Yom Kippur, holidays. Our job is to help ourselves and our loved ones and each other to open our eyes, to learn wisdom, to learn perception, to open ourselves up to the deeper truth. But here there are three doubts. The Mishnah speaks about three things. We're not sure if he's there or not there. We're not sure if he's dead or alive. We're not sure if he's a Jew or a Gentile. And we still go and search the rubble. What does this mean? Here is the Lubavitcher Rebbe's take. Is he there or not there? which means as follows. There are souls that come down into this world and they're overwhelmed by the entanglements of physical life. But there are souls who come down into the world but they're not really there. Suffolk sham, suffolk sham. They're not really there. They remain aloof. They remain sublime. You remember the story of Rabbi Meir of Primishlan? Meir of Primishlan was one of the great Hasidic masters. He was a short and frail man. The mikveh was on the bottom of a slopey mountain. In the winter, to get to the mikveh, you'd have to go up the mountain and go down the mountain. It was dangerous because it was filled with ice. You can slip. So everyone had to go the longer route and go around the mountain to get to the mikveh. Reb Meir, who was short and frail, would go up the mountain and then go down with swift and secure and confident steps and go to the mikveh. And they once asked him, Reb Meir, how do you do this? Why don't you slip? And he said in Yiddish, as misugebunden oiben faltmenisht unten. If you're tied above, if you're anchored in the higher reality, you don't fall down, you don't slip. And Meiril is anchored, Meiril is connected. By the way, the Rebbe writes in one of his private journals of the same year, the early 30s, that his father-in-law told him, that he heard from his father, the Rashab, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, who passed away in 1920, he heard this story from him. And he said, Vinizdazati. He said, I started to shake. He got very emotional from hearing the story. So the Rebbe Rashab tells him, Venish Nispal, das is Nachnish the Rebbe, das is the Dargif from Abhilil Padacha. The Rebbe says, 
It's an amazing story, but you don't have to get overwhelmed. It's still not what a Rebbe is. This is the level of Rebbe Hillel Parish. Rebbe Hillel Parish was one of the great Hasidim of Yuri, passed away, uh, Tafresh Chavdalad, 1864. It's one of the great Hasidim of the Balatanya, of the Mittler, of the Tzamachsadik, Rebbe Hillel Parish. Because this is the level of Rebbe Hillel Parish, which means it's amazing, it's astounding. But what does it really mean? It means some people are not here. They're, they're, they're in the world. They're in the world. There's a world of atheism and a world of confusion and a world of depression and a world of chaos. But they're not here. They're always in a different space. You know, I always say there are AM souls and FM souls, right? In the radio, right? AM souls, you turn on the channels and the world is coming to an end within seven minutes, especially when you have certain talk show hosts. You go to FM, zinc, negate. You know when you have an AM married to an FM? You ever saw that, right? The AM looks at the FM and says, you're out for lunch, you're clueless, you're detached, you don't care. And the FM looks at AM, you're always tense, you're always anxious. Where should you live, in AM or FM? Many of you don't even know what this is anymore. You don't listen to the radio. But in the olden days, we went into the car, you had AM or FM. Some people wanted to hear the crushing news, and some people wanted to hear their music. So Lahavdul Rebmeir Primishlana says, I'm anchored above, I don't fall below. So you look at a, you look at a person, you don't know if he's there or he's not there. The soul may not even be in the rubble. Suffolk Ene Shami may not even be there. Two types of people. You have a person who came into the world, but they never really landed, they never really became enmeshed. Such an individual, it's very easy to extract. Such an individual may not even need your assistance. But then you have a person who's so enmeshed in the rubble heap that he's indeed there, he's buried in it, he's overwhelmed. So the Mishnah says, I don't care who the person is. You go and get them, you go and help them. Then you have the second doubt. Suffolk chai, Suffolk mace. Even if he's there, he may be dead. Life in its ultimate definition is attachment to the source of life, to the creator of life. The Torah says, you who cleave to God are alive. But sometimes I ruin my life. Sometimes I betray the divine plan, the divine blueprint. I turn my back on my own essence. I turn my back on the source of my own reality. In other words, I turn my back on the will of Hashem, which is the DNA of reality. Imagine a person says, I'm not going to live according to my genes. My genes are not going to dictate my life. Don't let my genes interfere with my life. My dear, your genes are your life. Don't, God, don't tell me what to do. Don't interfere with my life. <laughs> God is your life. There's no life outside of the Creator. And that's why the Gemara says, When a person turns their back to their own soul, to their own divinity, to their own core, they may be physically alive, but emotionally and spiritually they're not alive. So there's a person who may be enveloped and entangled and overwhelmed by the heap, by the rubble heap of our world, but they're still alive. They're stressed, they're anxious, but they're still alive. They are fulfilling the divine blueprint. But then you have somebody who has severed the lifeline of his or her soul. He may be dead. Comes the Mishnah and says, you continue searching. Do not give up on any soul. Don't say, he might be dead, forget about it, it's hopeless. 
you continue searching and embracing and loving and bringing close every single soul. And then there's the third question. Suffolk Yisrael, Suffolk Nachri, a Jew or a heathen, a Jew or an alien. What does this mean? The Rebbe says, you have sometimes a person who transgresses the divine will. They transgress the will. So spiritually they have severed their lifeline. But they still cling to their identity. They still know who they are. There's still a loyalty to God, a loyalty to the people. Yes, I sin, I transgress. But my outlook ultimately is anchored in some basic loyalty and dedication to my people, to my God. But then you have somebody who is so overwhelmed by the rubble heap of life that he or she becomes completely alienated from their roots and they have now renounced the very essence of who they are. Is there any point in disturbing my own spiritual tranquility, my own Shabbos, to attempt the excavation of such an individual? Sometimes you look at a friend or you look at a child, you look at a nephew, you look at a niece, or you look at yourself. And you say, this person is so alienated. It's not just they have severed their lifeline. They do wrong things. They do things that undermine their connection with life. So there's a spiritual death there. You're talking here about a person who throws everything out, a person who alienates them completely. They don't want to look your way. They completely, it says, I completely see myself as an outsider, as an alien. I don't want any contact with you. Says the Torah. Whatever your doubts about your buried brother and sister are, whether he's there or he's not there, whether he's spiritually alive or dead, even if he may be or she may be completely alienated, they are never, ever, ever beyond hope. Never give up hope. Never stop the search and the labor of love to help them get out of the heap of rubble, get out of under the collapse building and live in a universe that is aligned, aligned with love and with oneness and with unity. Do everything in your power to clear the rubble that smothers his or her soul, his or her inner consciousness, to revive this person, to rekindle their indestructible identity. How characteristic for the person who wrote these words back in 1932. Could have anybody imagined in 1932 that in just 10 years the Jewish world of Eastern Europe would be turned into mass rubble. All that would be left from 6 million of our brothers and sisters would be ashes. Piles of ashes. Go to Maidanek and you'll see the piles of ashes. And sometimes spiritually we look at a person and we say there's nothing left. There's just a pile of debris here. There's nobody here. Even if the person is here, they're gone. And even if the person may not be gone, there's nobody to work with. I'm talking about spiritually. But the Rebbe says, the Torah tells us, no, you may have three major doubts. Do not stop the search. Do not close your heart. Do not close your mind to this person. Do not sever the connection. Remember that there is an indestructible soul that may be smothered, that may be repressed, that may be buried under layers and layers and layers of spiritual and psychological and mental debris and pain and trauma and anxiety. But you don't stop the dig. And now, in the next five minutes, I'm going to complete the last piece. 
Then there's an argument. How far do we check? To the heart or to the nose? The halacha is you check till the nose, even if the heart shows no sign of life. And what that means is no soul is beyond hope because the soul is a piece of God. But one opinion says, if you don't see anything in the heart, there's no hope. If you don't see any sign of emotion, any sign of spiritual life, there's no hope. The other opinion says, no, no, no. Go back till the nose. God blew into Adam the soul of life into his nostrils. We say the soul is in the nostrils. The Gemara says, in the beginning of the day, the soul is in my nostrils. Later, I have to try to expand it throughout my entire body and life. Don't look at the heart, even if the heart seems completely dead and lifeless. The soul is completely disconnected. But in the nose, there's still a soul. That's where God put the soul. You will find it. Don't give up hope. Look at that nose. And that's indeed the law of Judaism. And then finally... The Talmud says, sometimes you see that the higher ones, those who are located in a higher place, are dead already. When the building collapses, they have passed away. Do not presume that therefore you're not going to go down to the lower ones. He says, what does this mean? He says, sometimes you look at a situation and you see somebody who seemed so talented and elevated and spiritually refined. And yet they have given up on life. And you can't find any vitality there. And then you'll say, so for sure, I'm not going to work with somebody who seems to be in a much lower place, in a much lower state. Do not do that. Sometimes, he says, we have seen in history that talented people, lofty people, have succumbed to the confusions of life, to the pain of life. Do not presume that somebody with a lesser degree of talent or intelligence or spiritual aptitude is also doomed. Never give up on anybody's soul. Don't compare people. Don't say, eh, he's lower, she's lower, they're brute, they're careless, they're valueless, just give up on them. They really don't care. Look, even this great person is doomed. So what do you expect from this person? He says, do not do that. On the contrary, time and time again we have seen that sometimes it's the simple folk who have preserved Sometimes people who were eminent and erudite have fallen by the wayside. And yet the simple Jew with his deep inner faith and integrity, unencumbered by the complexities of intellect, has remained the hardiest survivor of them all. Don't judge people. You don't know who's an alien and who's a tacht and who's higher, who's lower. This one you could give up on. This one you can't give up on. This one is higher and he didn't make it for sure. This person I can't deal with. The Gemara says, in fact, Misa, if you look at reality, if you look at the stories, you'll see that we never, ever know the deep vulnerability and power and purity that exists in every single soul. And therefore, you never give up hope. And even when the rubble seems so overwhelming and the confusion seems so powerful and you're not sure if the person is there or they're not there, if they're alive or they're dead, and if it's a Jew or an alien, and there's nothing in the heart, and this person is on the lowest level, the lowest stratums of existence, you continue to dig. We never give up hope on any soul that may find itself in the rubble of life. 
We never give up on any soul that may be buried in physical rubble. We always hope for a glimmer of life. We'll do anything to rescue your person. And spiritually, we never give up hope on any type of soul existing in any rubble. Until we restore it, restore it, and we rebuild the structures of our homes, of our families, of our life and a world, creating a world that reflects the harmony and the oneness of its creator, of its creator, creating a world of alignment in which we are all united, in which we are all connected, in which we realize that there's a cosmic symphony in each of us is here to play and contribute our unique note to the divine and splendid symphony. Thank you. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. And may we hear good news from all of you and from all of us and from all of our communities and from all our loved ones and from all of our friends. May we hear good news coming from our beloved friends in Surfside, Florida and from all of our people the world over and from all good people in Surfside and the whole world until the moment when our world will perceive itself to be what it really is, not a mapilus, not a place of confusion and darkness, but a place of light and clarity, divine, infinite oneness. Okay, let me take some questions. How do I put myself out of the rubble when for me praying, reciting psalms, giving charity, lighting candles is really not uplifting me. So two things. Number one, these things may be associated in your life with pain, with anxiety. For some people, davening or reciting psalms triggers some anxiety from their youth. So you have to really see if that's the case. I don't know. But you have to ask yourself, what are your underlying feelings when you open up to Hillam and you're saying to Hillam, is there maybe guilt that's coming up? Is there like pressure that's coming up? Because really when you say Psalms, it's very, very emotional experience of serenity. King David felt like a child in the bosom of his mother, like a baby, literally in the bosom. Tehillim is the Jewish soul just melting away in honesty and vulnerability and deep connection. So what is it that it's doing? The same is true when you're lighting the candles or praying. There may be something that is sitting on you that you need to clear up in order to be able to appreciate all of these elements. What's the name of the book where this Fabrengen of the Rebbe is printed? It's Rishimais. It's a set called Rishimais. It's around 15 volumes. These are the journals that they discovered after the passing of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1994 in the drawers of his room. There was an argument, should they publish them, should they not publish them? But they published them in around 15 volumes, which I'm thankful for. And this is in this is volume 15. It's called Chaveres Tesvav. Each, each book has many pamphlets. This is pamphlet 15 of the Rishimas. It's around 90 pages, I think like 90 or 98 pages. And it's extremely intricate. It's not, it's not an easy read and it's not been translated. Um, 
there's an expression, rabble-rouser. But I think after this class, I would like to say that the Rebbe was a real rubble-rouser. He went on to continue the work of his father-in-law to rebuild a shattered Jewish world, to invigorate a world of ignorance, to become a world of enlightenment, to establish what people now describe as an incredible movement that really helped us clear so much rubble from our own lives. I'm writing this as a grateful Balchuva who discovered Judaism much later in my life. Question. I find that so many people are asleep. What can we do to wake them up? I think our focus should be on waking ourselves up. Let me wake myself up. And when I'm really, al- when I'm really alive and alert, your, my existence and your existence will stir the souls of other people. You said that this was said in 1932. Is it possible that the Rebbe spoke about this also because of the great Russian famine of 1932 and 1933 that killed 5 million people, including 4 million people in the Ukraine, which was the Rebbe's birthplace, in Dnepropetrovsk, where he grew up, and he was referring to this? Or maybe he was also referring to the Wall Street crash of 1929, which resulted in the Great Depression. Many people died. In our days, we saw 9-11, which of course brought down the tallest building in the world, killing 3,000. And it's fascinating that so many people didn't have closure until a speck of DNA confirmed what they already knew after 9-11. Yet, it's possible that the Rebbe was referring also to some event that happened in 1932 or 1931 or 1930, maybe in Poland or Latvia or Russia. Or maybe... He just chose this particular part of Gemara to use it as a springboard for the ideas. I wouldn't know that. You speak about scientific inquiry with truth, without bias. Can somebody be unbiased? Is there anybody in the world who's objective? Could somebody be be looking for truth? We all have preconceived notions. We all have confirmation bias. I don't believe that there's such a thing as an objective person who is completely objective. I agree with you. But at least I could be open to my biases. I could be open to the fact that I have biases. I may not always be able to know what they are and see them on my own, but I could tell myself, you know what? Maybe I have to go deeper. Maybe I have to really try to get rid of my fear of what the conclusion may be. Maybe I'm not comfortable with learning that there is a God in the world. Maybe it's too painful. Maybe it means that there are demands. Maybe it means that I have to ask myself, what's the purpose? It's so much easier to say life is a mistake. I don't think it's really easier. I think it's depressing, but ultimately it's easier, shorter. So I have to at least open myself up to all of these factors. (laughs) A lot of beautiful questions. Wow. Okay, last question. By 1932, there were already whispers of the Holocaust. We all know of an essay by Rav Kook about the Schoeffer and his speech that he gave in the Churva in 1933. So maybe this was some subtle, unconscious intimation of what would be happening to Eastern European Jewry. That's what I said earlier, that suddenly the Mapilas, the all the structures that Jews were comfortable in, or at least somewhat comfortable, and or at least accustomed to, came crashing down in the years after 1932. 
and we had to rebuild, and we rebuilt. But now again, so many structures are crumbling in a different way, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You had Miron, you had Carlin, you have here Surfside. You had Corona, the Corona structures brought the whole world to its knees, 7.7 billion people. And I think at such moments, you know, we have to really be able to go out there with compassion and help lift every single person who may be buried in the rebels of of uncertainty and confusion and and sadness and despair and, and trauma and anxiety. That's our job. That's our job. Everyone today is a rescue worker. Rescue yourself, rescue your kids, and rescue everybody you know. And rescue doesn't mean that I'm the savior and have all the answers. It just means I could give you my arm, my hand. I could stretch out my hand, stretch out my arm, and most importantly, stretch out my heart. And I think that's one of our mission statements today. What is the title of the volume of books found and printed? It's called Rishimais, Rishimais. Reish Shin Yud Mem Vav Sof. R-E-S-H-I-M-O-S. Rishimais by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I wish you all an amazing day and a beautiful day. May we hear good news and may we all be zeichet to the Geula Shleima b'mheira b'yameinu. Amen. Take it for me, Ad Mamish. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And especially, I want to thank everybody that's joining us from Florida. There's many people joining us here from Florida. I can see, including friends, families, relatives of those who are not accounted for. And uh, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here and just say that we're with you. You're in our thoughts. You're in our hearts. You're in our prayers. We want to be here with you. We stand with you together at this moment of of challenge and difficulty and deep emotional uncertainty and yet profound faith and profound hope. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.